0: Talking with Eric Schwartzel, the author of Red Carpet and Red Carpet, not about the Hollywood premiere, but Hollywood, China and the global battle for cultural supremacy, cultural supremacy. And that's that's a story that you uh, kind of recount um, really from the early days of Hollywood through World War One, right on up to COVID-19. And I'm guessing probably the Olympics in China will provide new material um, but that's not in your book yet. <laughs> that's a, that's a, <laughs> yeah, I know that didn't, that didn't make the cut. <laughs> well, you can't, you can't write after the second. You have to stop somewhere, but no, Eric, the, the story is of course, for people who, you know, have heard about this and I think it's been out there for a while. The China's has become a powerful, uh, movie market, uh, they've gone to Hollywood to get their kind of lessons learned. And then boom, here comes the Chinese film industry. And, you have a lot more in there, though, about the little games that—and games is probably the wrong word—but the the you got to play to China's tune in this thing, and uh, you've got all kinds of examples of that. Uh, what was the biggest challenge for you, Eric, in in doing this book? Because you traveled quite widely to do it. I did, I did, because I wanted to um,
1: really try and cast a wide net when it came to the people I spoke to for this book and the experiences I heard about, because you alluded to something that that was really top of mind when I was reporting it, which is this idea that anyone who grew up going to the movies knows their inherent power and just how much they can shape our views and our values. And so I didn't want to write a book that felt like it was just a series of plot summaries or looking at something in kind of a clinical way, because I think there's a lot of emotion here. This is really about a campaign for hearts and minds. And so I think the challenge was trying to find ways to tell these stories that show that impact, show that power. And a lot of it came frankly from talking to moviegoers here in China, in other parts of the world, and realizing through those conversations just how much they were downloading from the images they saw, whether those images were produced in America or in China. Because as you said, for a hundred years, America has enjoyed this incredible cultural dominance, and what we've seen over the past 10 or 20 years is China's efforts to mount its own competitor to that.
0: And, you know, you, you've you got it uh, sort of synchronized, if you will. The, the movie, The Fugitive, not the TV show, but the movie with Harrison Ford kind of launched, uh, wasn't it, the first one that... Uh, Was it first one in China or did well in China? I can't remember, but it was the first one.
1: It was it was the first American movie, um, not the first American movie to ever show in China, but it was the first American movie let in through this sort of new contract that Warner Brothers drew up in 1994. And this is at a moment when China's economy is modernizing at a rapid rate. Hollywood is not the only American business to rush in. And for a while, China's box office, despite having more people than any country on Earth, is really small because ticket prices are so low and there just really aren't a lot of screens. But over the next 10 to 15 years, theaters grow at a clip. And soon the Chinese box office is growing exponentially while the American box office is stagnating.
0: And of course, you rush that right to the present or or to the near present with the COVID-19 the impact on American theaters and, and other theaters around the world, but not so great in China. I mean, China kept going, right? I mean, they've, they've, they became the most popular, uh, I think you, you cite there, it was it last year that they topped um, American audiences, which n- probably not too surprising since many theaters were closed for yeah. know, long periods of time. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, uh,
1: U.S. theaters were closed for You know, months and months and months in China, when when the virus was brought under control, theaters opened and they were able to take over as the number one box office in the world. So a really there's, you know, a very big asterisk next to that to that record, but nonetheless, a really symbolic victory and something that I think a lot of people in Hollywood thought was an inevitability with or without covid. And it'll be interesting to see because now that Americans are going back to the theaters certainly more than they were before, it's, it'll be interesting to see just how COVID has changed our habits. You know, how many people, I talked to theater owners in the US quite a bit and they tell me that the people who were the diehard moviegoers, they've returned and they're going back to the theater. It's those people who might've gone once or twice a year who mm-hmm. have dropped off and who they're fighting to get back.
0: right. <clears throat> And that's, that's going to, you know, the story yet to be seen. Now, one of the things in your book that's fascinating is the fact that, and again, that some of this has become news items through the years, but China is very sensitive to that image and in things like a patch on a jacket, uh, that, that is, you know, is, is from a country that they're, you know, questionable about or whatever it is, uh, any reference to Tibet, um, Hong Kong and, and uh, all these other things that the China, you know, we know the issues with China, but these really come up and come under the microscope for for uh, studios, don't they? Absolutely, because the the number one thing to understand is that in order to access that
1: massive box office we just referenced, you need to have your movie approved by Chinese. Communist Party officials. And so these are officials who are scrutinizing every frame, not just for some of the political third rails that you mentioned, like Tibet and Taiwan, or any element of Chinese history that they'd rather not see on screen. So not only do those political issues become you know territory you can't explore, but really anything that shows China in a negative or unflattering light, down to a James Bond movie in which 007 shoots and kills a Chinese security guard. That scene had to be cut from the movie Skyfall because it made China look weak. So all of these movies, if they have a scene set in China or a Chinese character, have to become de facto commercials
0: for China in order to be shown in their theaters. And, and again, we're, we're talking... With Eric Schwartz, author of Red Carpet, a book about the uh, Chinese rise in the movie industry. But you got some great historic references there that, well, first of all, that many of these things played out in the U.S. where there was plenty of censorship early on. And then we switch over to Germany um, before the before the war in the 30s. And they were very sensitive about portrayal of the Nazis uh, really curtailed Hollywood's involvement in that. Um, you, again, these, these are things that are a part of history. Absolutely. And,
1: and, and the parallels between how the Nazi party influenced Hollywood before the US joined World War II and the way that the Chinese officials influence Hollywood today were really striking to me. It was something that I just kept finding over and over again in my research was that there was a playbook here. And, and there are a couple things in that playbook to, to watch out for. And one is this tendency to make very public examples of people who break the rules. So anytime you see an actor in Hollywood really hurriedly apologizing to Chinese citizens for you know getting something wrong, like John Cena last year had to apologize because he implied Taiwan was its own country, which is a a stance that those in Beijing, you know, vehemently Mm -hmm. disagree with, you know, the reason that he had to quickly apologize was because within China, they made it very clear that if he didn't, they would ban his movies from playing in the country. And so then you have this apology video made that everyone else in Hollywood can watch and learn from. And the Nazi party had a very similar approach of finding very, very public examples. And saying, you know, look at what we did to this person. You know, you need to censor your own behavior to avoid the same ramifications.
0: And we we're talking with Eric Schwartzel with the Red Carpet, author of Red Carpet, book uh, that is fascinating uh, reading because of, of so many of these examples of companies American companies that that have grown so large. Uh, we're talking about Disney and, uh, you know, and Apple and, and you can you know the list. It's not a big list, but it's they're big companies and they all kind of drop to their knees at uh, when when China tells them to do something. That's right. I mean, and, and in a way they have to, because
1: right now a lot I don't envy the CEOs of those companies because. On one hand, they are doing business with a country that in some cases wants to build and develop competitors to their business. Mm -hmm. Um, They're also doing business with a country that is increasingly at odds with uh, the American government. But these are also business executives with a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to maximize profits. And taking a stand that costs you
0: access to China is just too lucrative to risk. And you make the point that Netflix uh, is, the, is the sort of the outlier because they aren't in China or at least uh, you tell me, uh, I, I got the impression they really don't have a big stake in China. If Maybe they're working on it, but as a result they can do things that the other studios can't. That's right, they tried to get into China.
1: For several several years, they wanted to expand into China. I mean, the list of uh, countries that Netflix is not in is is really quite uh, illustrative. It's I think it's China, North Korea, and Syria. It is very (laughs) weird.
0: Tells you something right there. Yeah, Yeah. you could
1: probably stream it in Antarctica, but like (laughs) you can't in China, and it's because they've they've really protected. It's a protection a protectionist measure on China's part to avoid having any outside competition with its own streaming networks right and so when netflix realized that they were not getting into china and it doesn't look like that situation is going to change anytime soon it did give them a license to stream movies and documentaries that are more critical of china that have plot points about chinese officials that you know, other studios wouldn't dare touch, and it's really just, frankly, because they don't have the market access,
0: and they probably never will. We're talking with Eric Schwartz author of Red Carpet, and Eric, the uh, the point that the book makes is that uh, these these American releases, the, the the Marvel comic movies, the the Disney movies, the, the so called blockbusters, um, have been kind of pushed into China. I guess with mixed results, depending on. Uh, incidents and, and so forth. Uh, but are they still are they still an open market for that? Because you, as you make a point in the book, the Chinese audience uh, now wants Chinese films, right? Right. And that's
1: understandable, right? I mean, I think right. as China's film industry grew more sophisticated and frankly just leaned more into doing popcorn entertainment, Chinese audiences, their taste started to gravitate more toward the Chinese films. But more recently, we've seen an additional layer on top of that, which is the government issuing more controls that keep more Western films out of the market. So in the past year, movies like Black Widow, The Eternals, even the new Spider-Man movie, these are movies that definitely were put into production counting on the Chinese market, have not been allowed into Chinese theaters. And it's left studios with a big fat zero, where I know they were counting on hundreds of millions of dollars in grosses.
0: Wow. And again, that's the power of the Chinese market. What about, um, you know, we we know America was, uh, was and is perhaps the world leader, uh, longstanding of of, uh, sort of exporting films around the world. What about other countries? I'm thinking of France and and other countries in Europe. uh, uh, You know, what what are the film industries there? How how are they getting along with China? You know,
1: I think it's it's on a much smaller level. Um, Traditionally, those smaller markets have been, have stayed rather domestic. You know, a lot of French movies stay in France, a lot of German movies stay in Germany with the occasional, you know, breakout, um, often in like the art house circuit here right. in the US, right? Um, and so we will occasionally see a European film, um, an Indian film, a Latin American film move into China and come out. But it's really been... scattering, only maybe one or two a year. I mean, when it comes to foreign entertainment, Chinese audiences over the past two decades have been very well acquainted with American entertainment and less so with other countries. But what's fascinating is that as China's relations with other countries have warmed, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Russia, what you'll often see are Chinese producers start announcing co-productions with those countries. So these co-production announcements kind of become this barometer of China's feelings toward that country at large. And I remember just a short little story for you. I remember when I was in uh, Shanghai on a reporting trip for the book, reading an article about how um, Vladimir Putin had sent Xi Jinping ice cream for his birthday. And then later that day, going to a, to a party that announced the first ever, China U, or, uh, sorry, first ever China-Russian co-production. Um, it was almost like the cinematic version of that ice cream gift
0: yeah <laughs> no kidding well and of course that's in the news as we speak uh, exactly Chinese Russian religion it's so up to date. What about um, I'm thinking of the uh, the the sensitivity well, you make a point in the book I wanted to ask you this that you know China is so you know really has their uh, guard up when it comes to censorship but I think you make the point that that's not how America did it. I mean, America. They, we, I don't say warts and all because that's probably being a little too sweeping, but America doesn't isn't afraid to show. Hey, we got problems here. Um, that's not the case with China. Is that? I mean, the point you make when you you go to uh, the the African uh, satellite dish. Uh, you know, is is that in Kenya? Kenya, um, yes, mm-hmm. Kenya. Um, the point is, I think you, you spoke to uh, customers there in, in Kenya and they were going, oh, the Chinese, they they, they you know—they do no wrong, you know, because this is what they see on, on the screen. Um, but, you know, they, in the long run, that's not going to work, is it? I mean, one would think that that's, that's going to be kind of productive.
1: Yeah, it's tough to say. You're right that you're right that I think most audiences know when they're being, you know, served medicine. And. Mm-hmm. And I think I think you're right. Um, And that's why I think China has moved in with such aggression. And and that's why these satellite dishes that carry their entertainment are subsidized and cost so much less than the alternatives because they want to kind of bridge that gap in appeal however they can. I mean, I often think of it this way. I mean, How many movies have we seen where it's revealed in the final moments that the bad guy was the CIA or. The U.S. government was behind the plot. That is is not a storytelling device that you will ever see in a Chinese film. Um, If anything, every Chinese movie will end with the bad guy getting caught and there being consequences. You know, think of it this way. In the Chinese version of The Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter would never escape at the end.
0: (laughs) Uh, this this brings up so many plot points you know what I was thinking Eric we are talking with Eric Schwartzel, author of red carpet when I was reading about the uh, the Chinese efforts in Africa and, and you know we know that they've invested heavily in Africa for for reasons that, that make sense for a country that wants to become a well is a world power but wants to develop further I, I had this thought especially since you've already referenced Netflix in the book Netflix with all its profits should, you know, kind of compete in Africa, get your satellite dishes out there. You know, let's let's get you go on to the next town and see. No, no, no. Don't get it from China. We got one here for you because, you know, that's that's the new market. You know, that's that's the world market. And uh, we're, we're not we're kind of lagging in that. I think our, our, our certainly our streams are out there. But, uh, you know, to make it possible for people who don't have a lot of money to watch it. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's a
1: bit, it's a bit of a um Africa, India. There are a couple of countries like that that I think are are really over the next decade going to be the final frontier for a lot of that that competition. I guess the the key difference is in China you have the government backing that effort. Right. I don't I don't see the American government ordering Netflix to do the same. It's just <laughs> it's just a system that doesn't doesn't cooperate between right. industry and government that way. So so you're right. I mean, I think Netflix would love to expand more deeply into Africa for economic reasons. But in China, it's less about economics and more about politics.
0: Very good. Well, Eric, I, th- we've been talking with Eric the author of Red Carpet, uh, just a fabulous book about right up to the minute, up to the second, uh, this this ongoing competition. You know, I can't wait to see what happens next, because uh, obviously there's, there's going to be a it, it might take years, but uh, the the whole story is going to unfold. As you said, just just how America responds after COVID in the movie business is, is it going to be a question mark. So lots of things to look at here. Eric. Yeah, I'll have to write a sequel. <laughs> well, we, we look forward to that. Thank you, Eric Trutzel, <laughs> author of Red Carpet, right here uh, talking the story of, of China's rise in, in the film world. And uh, we, we, we thank you, Eric. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. You too.